Barnaby's apocalypse. Had to knock it out on a desk and recorder and a wood block. I think it was a cerebral checkers place cop. Went to the ball in a horse-drawn bath. They all had hair like nostalgia. I survived the great nostalgia wars of 1989. <laughs> Hello, I'm Tim Worthington, and welcome to the third in the series of highlights from Lots and Familiar, a show in which myself and the guests talk about six things that they remember that no one else ever seems to. If you're talking about programmes that used to get shown in the school holidays that no one remembers, you can't get much more obscure than Unicorn Tales, which is a late 70s American singing and dancing morality play comedy series for children, where I can't really remember very much that happened in it apart from there was an episode about a magic hat or somebody tried to sell them a magic hat that wasn't actually magic. And I did try to write a blog article about it a couple of years ago, but I watched about five minutes, got bored and gave up. I do remember how the song about the hat went, and I can't say I'd be particularly pleased to have heard it on one of those holiday mornings. When writer Will McLean joined us, however, he wanted to talk about why, if he heard Barks to Carter and Fugue in the morning during the school holidays, he was never very happy about it. It's because it's, it was used as the theme to Once Upon a Time Man, which purported to be an educational... It was an educational show. It'd be slanderous to say it wasn't. It was a very good educational show, but it had the big problem with Once Upon a Time Man was the title sequence, which begins with humans descending from the trees, and then, you know, gradually, like in a Simpsons couch gag, they become... Yeah, it's a man. It's very, it's very patriarchal. Once upon a time, man, you probably got that from the title. He becomes a caveman, then an Egyptian. It, it's surprisingly comprehensive for the time it has. And then eventually, it sort of shows, you know, human progress accelerating. There's a car, then a train, then it's a plane, then it's a, a like an Apollo 11 style rocket, and then there's lots of sort of notes of panic sets in as you watch it, especially as a child, because then lots of panicking men run towards the rocket, and the rocket takes off and goes into space, and the Earth blows up at <laughs> the end. It's very unambiguous. And, and it, like, so the, the rocket goes, and then the Earth glows orange and blows up. And as if you haven't got the message, it's a French production, I think. The caption, Et la terre foot, <laughs> comes up over, over the Earth, uh, as if to go, well, just, just in case you didn't get what we were driving out there, the, the world ends. So anyway, look, let's learn some history. You know, to a child, I, mean, I, I first saw it, it started in 79, I think, or 80. I think it was shown 80 over here. But I could never get beyond the title sequence because it was like, that was kind of setting out their stall. They were going, well, human history is going to end any day. So, but, you know... Let's have a look back at some of the highlights. And it was such a weird approach for a history show. Well, you say it started with humans coming down from the trees, but it actually started with... This is the thing that always stayed with me. The creation of the universe and sort of blue and black swirls and the supernova and the Big Bang, all kinds of things, and then sort of bubbling lava. And right in the middle of it, Barnaby appears. Yes, Genuinely, yes, a line drawing of Barnaby. And at that point, I think Barnaby hadn't been on for a few years. It was something that just existed at the back of my memory. I remember thinking, what? What, what, what? What's he doing there? Barnaby had no cultural heft at all at that time. He was. I remember him being in the, the kids' comic Pippin in Playland. <laughs> yes. But that's the only exposure to Barnaby I had. And the, yeah, so it begins, it's like Barnaby's apocalypse. We begin with the creation <laughs> of the world. Oh, and there's Barnaby. And then there's Armageddon. So it's like, that's, that's all humans did. Well, I do remember seeing bits of the programme myself, but I couldn't really follow it because it just seemed to be... I think something must have got lost in translation because every bit of history involved this old geezer with a really, really long white beard, a 
a chimp and the sort of talking calendar that like told them when they got history wrong. To be fair, I found the approach at the beginning so off-putting. I could never quite face the show, <laughs> so it was like it would it would be quite jokey the tone of that. But it's like, well, what have you done? Why have you started on this bum note? <laughs> <laughs> Why have you, you? You can't come back from that. It's a really. It was just the strangeness of that approach. Yeah, and I showed it to people. You know, just you sit and watch them watching it, and then they get to the end, and they're like, "I, I can't believe this. <laughs> this was for children." And it's like, well, I'm afraid so. Yeah. Well, there is a serious question in that. You know, that theme music really wasn't appropriate for kids' programs. But what was it with scary, overdriven organs and TV themes around them? Because there were quite a few things like world in action. I think Credo had a similar theme. Credo did, I believe, and yeah. What, what was the craze there? I don't, was it a hangover from prog rock? I don't quite understand it. I think it might have been, because you have Weekend World, which has got that story oh, yes. <laughs> from the end of Nantucket Sleigh Ride by Mountain, which is a brilliant, brilliant. let's use heavy metal, let's use proto-metal to communicate the mood you know which is um, and weekend world i don't I have a very vague memory of weekend world but i seem to remember it was always about the minor strike like every week but it would always be prog rock and, and the minor strike but yeah i think it's a hangover from prog the rendition of to carter and fugue on once upon a time man is really terrifying <laughs> they've really gone for it and also the one on what's the other show you mentioned just earlier world in action that was harrowing that was a properly harrowing organ solo it was just the whole mood of it really and it was a whole and it was a mood i think there's a lot of things on it was just that step beyond it was like you know and i suppose that once upon a time man's title sequence which is what we're talking about is the model for that because it was so if you haven't watched the last 10 seconds you go this is this is going to be great and then it isn't it's horrible and there wasn't much escape from it either because once upon a time man used to sometimes show up on sunday mornings as well you might not know that, though, because you may have been hearing a very different kind of overdriven organ at church instead. Writer Una McCormack certainly did, and when she joined us, she wanted to talk about one of the more unusual reminders of the days of confession, communion and confirmation. These might take a little bit of explanation because, as I think you said, people think I've made these up and I haven't. So these are sort of little bottles that you could put holy water in. So I, I, had, a, I had a Catholic you know, upbringing, I went to little convent school, got dragged out to Lourdes, three times as a teenager and lots of Catholic stuff involves you know splashing holy water around and these are little bottles plastic bottles that are in the shape of the Virgin Mary and the crowning glory to these is literally a little blue crown that you can unscrew and kind of get back on and they are just unbelievably kitsch these things are incredible I mean they were I just saw them everywhere when I was looking you get them in different sizes you get sort of mini Marys and you know you kind of build a sort of full size <laughs> thing that you can get a litre in or something and it was a litre we were in France so you know there are no pints so uh, this was lowered so um, people don't believe me when I tell them about these things I think some people think that the head used to unscrew that would obviously be ridiculous you could <laughs> It's just this blue crown on top. So you'd have this little see-through bottle and she'd be there. They'd maybe have painted a few dabs of blue paint on so that you've got her, her rosary beads, which she's praying to herself, of course. It's all Hail Mary's. But, and then on top, you've got this blue crown and you'd fill it up with holy water and you'd cart this stuff back through customs and splash it around your house. They are absolutely incredible. And this is only the thin end of the wedge when it comes to Catholic Kitch. This is just my the thing I've picked for you to have a little glimpse of the kind of tad that you could get. Our house was full of this stuff. We, we really were quite Catholic. But they are 
extraordinary. And you didn't believe me, did you? You didn't think it was a thing. No, although I was exposed to a lot of this stuff myself. But the thing that I always remember, more than any sort of souvenir merch... Souvenirs of Jesus, what a theory (laughs) that is. But on the way out of our church, they were always selling what appeared to be a newspaper called the Catholic Pictorial. My gosh, yes. I never quite figured out what that was for, what was in it. I mean, what would the news have been? The Lord's still our Redeemer. You know, shock headline. (laughs) There must have been hundreds of thousands even of issues of this thing, and you never see them anywhere. I mean, I had a brief look online to see if I could find out anything about it. I found one cover of it, which is from when the Metropolitan Cathedral in Liverpool was finished and opened in 1967. There's a cover from there, and it's the most 60s-looking thing you can imagine, but it's got that real sort of 60s colouring to a photo of two bishops looking up at the top of it and <laughs> well, who read it it was the liverpool diocese newspaper so it was it was read by my family and we were quite <laughs> we were quite a big family so you know the circulation was, was quite, just to us it was quite high yeah it was the liverpool diocese one it, it was the liverpool echo for catholics that's incredible i don't know they filled it with news to, i mean what you know rosary will be done on this night <laughs> Easter well, early this year. <laughs> I'm led to believe, having asked around, there was also one called the Catholic Herald, which is kind of the broadsheet, and the Catholic Victoria was more kind of the, the heat hello <laughs> gossip magazine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's really, a lot of Catholicism is about gossip, isn't it? It is Mary seen in balm cake <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, I think the Herald was a national one, and, and yeah, that was obviously, you know, a, a different... That was all about kind of posh English Catholics, you know, people who are posh enough that they can still be Catholic and English. So. <laughs> But the Liverpool one, obviously, you know, that was full of Irish people. So, uh, oh, my God, the Catholic pick, that takes me back. Really, really does. <laughs> well, let's be honest about this. Catholic Church in the Northwest is one big gossip network because there's a famous story about, I think I may still have only just been 15, I might have been 16, but I eventually got permission to go and get my ear pierced. Yeah. And I did that one Saturday morning. And, you know, I was feeling quite daring, rebellious. I thought it was in the Jesus and Mary chain, basically. But... <laughs> When I got home, I found out that my grandmother had already been on the phone because one of her associates from church had phoned her up and said, "Uh, I thought I just saw your lad in town and it looked like he had an earring. And she phoned up demanding to know all about it. It's that vast, the trivial information about nothing just spreads like wildfire. What would they have done if Jesus actually came back? They wouldn't have believed it. They wouldn't have. They'd have. They'd have tested him. He wouldn't have been good to. Oh, I don't like the look of him. His hair's a bit long. I remember once going to, and there was a lot of this in Lourdes, and there was a place just at the road for us. We were in St Helens, and I think this must have been sort of on the way to Ormskirk or something. And it was a. It was the place where you went to buy the tats to fill the tats, the beautiful iconography to fill your church. And then my favourite one. So you know, I don't even remember those pens. That would have a little bit of liquid in, and you, you, there'd sort of be a little scene, and you could you, tilt the pen, and something would roll up and down the water. Well, we got one of these, and it, you started with a. It was a row of clerics, and you started with a priest at one end, and it <laughs> went all the way up to the Pope. Given the variety of those pens that most people remember, that's quite a contrast. That's it. I know. I know. <laughs> well, I don't have a copy of the Catholic Pictorial in front of me right now. What I do have is a copy of Codename Icarus by Richard Cooper, which, despite having one of the worst covers of a book ever, it's actually a really good book, but it was also based on a BBC children's drama serial. 
as writer Rael remembered only too well. I had a lot of time for the BBC. Was it about ten past five, the drama slot? Breaking the Sun is the one that really started me off on BBC drama, but I think everybody remembers that. But then you had lesser known ones, Codename Icarus, which played into that fantasy of some of us that we have as kids and uh, adults, where the government discovers that we're major geniuses and they need to use our skills for sinister aims. And basically it was about this guy who was failure at school, rubbish, rubbish at everything. But then they discovered he was a mathematical whiz and they took him to this special school to work for the government. And I can't really remember what happened, but there's an episode at the end of the episode where the government kills a pigeon. <laughs> and, really? which, yes, which doesn't, <laughs> which doesn't sound traumatic. But when it's in slow-mo with, like, with, with a scream, it was absolutely... And remember, there was no neighbours at this point to bring you out into the... You know, you were left with this. You were left with this image of this boy holding this pigeon, offering it to the sky, going, no! And it, it really was terrifying. And I love the way that, that, you know, governments were absolutely portrayed as potentially dreadful things. And I don't know if you could still do it now because everybody's trying to be so... Um, I think there's such a such a people are trying to do the right thing that often they they will back out of anything that's remotely sinister or alarming or anything like that. But yeah, codename Icarus was super. I've no, I think in the end his parents just came to pick him up at his end of term and he went home with his tuck shop bag. But in the interim with Dead Bird, it, it was fantastic. Wasn't it a Cold War thing? The kids were working on some kind of thing to hold the world to nuclear ransom. Look, I can't say for definite the stakes were big because, to be honest, once you've seen you know a Dead Bird, it's very difficult to concentrate on the. On the Cold War elements, <laughs> never mind the annihilation of the entire, you know, human race. There's there's a pigeon here, Tim, and it's dead. But I do know the stakes were high. But I do know it, as with a lot of those BBC dramas, the last episode, which you always kind of you couldn't wait for, always went out with a bit of a fizzle. Yes. It's like Breaking the Sun ended really neatly and really shouldn't have ended that neatly, but did. Not having seen that since the time, I'm trying to recall, for the benefit of anyone who's never seen it, was what's it about? Basically, it's about an abused girl who ran away. And just the end with the dad saying, I'm sorry, I won't be abusive anymore. I've changed my exactly ways. Exactly right. So basically, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't do this now. So basically, she is abused. She runs and joins a theatre group that go on a barge. <laughs> it's not funny, but I mean, think of that now. She just randomly hooks up with some adults and says, yes, come with us. You can play in our theatre group. And we yacht around the whole of four. We barge around the whole of Britain. It's definitely a, a, some sort of water transport involved. And yeah, at the end, she gets she's at some sort of seaside resort and she's on top of, you know, one of those huge slides and she's threatening to jump. And the stepfather says, and the stepfather, I think, was Terry the chef from Faulty Towers. He was. Yeah. He says, you know, I won't do it, dear, anymore. I won't hit you anymore. Because she was wee- wet. She wet the bed as well, bless her. I mean, I have to say, it was it was gritty. It was really good. I'm not knocking it. But yeah, it tied. It had to tie itself up really neatly at the end, as they often did. It really is true that they weren't afraid to frighten children then. Although the one that scared me the most. It's a really weird example because it was a series I actually hated, a BBC drama in that slot called God's Wonderful Railway, about train-obsessed children from over the years. There was one where they were evacuated, and one of the evacuees decided for some reason to take a huge bite out of a huge black toadstool with white spots on. And later on, saying to the sort of supervisor, Sir, I don't feel well. I think it's that fungus thing. 
Oh my God. And then it never said what happened to him. Apart from in the next episode, somebody said to one of the characters, oh, I heard about what happened with whatever his name was. And for days I was thinking, what happened to that kid? What became of him? They never said, but that really, really disturbed me. But can you imagine that being in a programme like no. that now? No, no. Not an off-screen fungi death, no. You wouldn't go... <laughs> well, we don't you know wouldn't... that he actually did die. You might have just be violently died. ill. But... It was a death cap. It was part of the... Um, is it Amin- I could never say Aminata family. It was a death cap. I don't know if it was grown up in a rural area in the in the 70s, but we used to get shown a patches a lot. And the scene where the girl drinks weed killer, or is it fertilizer, and then is screaming in bed at night, I can hear that now. I, I was traumatized for life, but I was, it was meant to be. But I don't think you're meant to walk through fields with your mouth clamped together just in case some fertilizer or weed killer runs in, <laughs> which, is what it did, which is what it did to this anxious eight or nine year old. Well, if you were going to get that freaked out by children's television, you might have been better off spending your time playing with your toys instead. When writer Jacqueline Rayner joined us, after already talking about bizarre European battle game clonks, she wanted to talk about a doll that didn't exactly make her the envy of all her friends. Pippa dolls? I wasn't really a doll person, but for some reason I loved these. They were a fashion doll in the Barbie or Cindy vein, but smaller, quite a bit smaller. And not exactly obscure, because I remember buying them in places like Woolworths and, and Boots. But they were always really Barbie and Cindy's, you know, forgotten cousin that they hid in the back room when visitors came (laughs) over. You didn't get a lot of their stuff in the shops. And my friends at the time, I don't think, you know, they did weren't unaware of the existence of Pippa dolls, but they had Barbies and they had Cindy's. And it was just me with these particular ones. I just remember going around the shops and you got so excited if you actually saw something to do with Pippa because it was just that bit more obscure. I hardly had any accessories, you know, actual real Pippa branded accessories because you hardly ever came across them i had pippa's horse which i found in a shop and that was very exciting and i also had pippa's bathroom which was bright pink and consisted of sink bath and toilet yeah the obvious combination Um, there of course so most of the things i did with my pippa dolls were either you know horse or bathroom related what actually what i really did because I was obviously a fairly pretentious child and was I used to write plays for my Pippa dolls. We quite often did pantomimes. Cinderella was quite a good one because you'd get your your sort of early scruffy Pippa doll at the beginning and then at the end she'd transform into one of the really glam ones. There was a princess one and a film star one that had ankle length hair which was just you know height of glamour absolutely so that was that was quite cool but you know it was a cinderella where she wasn't sent to scrub the hearth she had to scrub out the toilet um, and then possibly went to the ball in a horse-drawn bath (laughs) quite often you know now I, i do actually write for a living you write a story and people will say okay but you've only got x number of characters and you can only have this number of different scene settings. And by the way, we want you to include in it, you know, this monster or this happening or something to time with something else. So I think actually it was a really good experience for me that I had to put together plays featuring a small variety of Pippa characters. She did. There were sort of some other Pippas. There was like Pippa's friend Tammy and Pippa's boyfriend 
Pete, who just had, oh, really quite ugly plastic hair. <laughs> and yeah, I had to fit these around the whole horse and bathroom scenarios. So yeah, I should I should be really grateful, perhaps, that there weren't that many accessories in the shops because it's given me essential training for my life today. I'm just intrigued by how many adventures could you have with the horse and the bathroom? Well, you know, it's just a bit of imagination. You know, your runaway horse that smashes into a bathroom factory. You know, <laughs> these things can happen. <laughs> or you happen to be in the bath when some, you know, horse monster from the planet Horso materialises and, you know, starts attacking and you have to dress yourself up in some lovely 70s hippie smock gear, which you've possibly earned actually with petal points. And, you know, and you have some amazing adventure and obviously uh, you've managed to fight the horse off before Pete comes round to use your toilet. Incidentally, we later established that Pippa dolls are in exact scale with the modern Doctor Who figures. And if you have a look at my website, you can see a photo that Jack did of Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with Pippa. Of course, not everyone got the toys that they wanted. And for broadcaster and journalist Samira Ahmed, it was even worse because to get to the toys that she wasn't allowed, she had to get past stacks and stacks and stacks of fizzy drinks that no one wanted first. I used to want to drink Corona because it looked interesting and exciting and it was orange and fizzy. And my parents had this pathological objection to buying only certain branded goods. And one of them was branded fizzy drinks. And my dad had a business in catering supply, so he had a, a membership of this then very big catering wholesalers called Nerd and Peacock and they had a giant warehouse near where we lived in an old Art Deco building and you could buy anything by the case so they spill these weird Nerd and Peacock own brand fizzy drinks which were utterly disgusting and some of them we know we had to have and pretend that well this is what you're going to have if you want Fanta or Corona or whatever and it's it's weird that it's still bothers me because I I don't allow fizzy drinks in my house anymore for my own kids except for birthdays but I just thought if you're going to buy something buy the real thing or just mm. don't buy it um, and yeah it was part of the letdown was that they bought, they would buy so much of it because it was so cheap yeah. <laughs> but it was so disgusting um, but yeah the other main thing about Ned and Peacock was children weren't supposed to be in there because it had forklift lift trucks drive around mm. all the time with giant crates and of course it's been the 70s, my father didn't <laughs> worry about it. And I remember going with him and some guys from the office to buy supplies. And suddenly, we're walking down an aisle and this guy stops, supervising, he points his finger, like he's Donald Sutherland at the end of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, <laughs> and shouts, No, children! And of course, I'm the one who feels horrified and shocked. Yeah, yeah. And it was definitely a kind of child catcher Baron Bomberg moment as well. <laughs> We thought, what are they going to do? And of course, typically, they just let us finish our shop. Well, it sounds like the child catcher wouldn't have got very far as offering that cola to children. <laughs> They'd have yeah. run in the other direction. Yeah, well, the other thing was nothing was ever cleared out. So it sold, you know, catering food, mm. but also, you know, supplies, but also toys. I think it was the idea that if you ran a, a corner shop or a newsagent, you would go and stock up on yeah. toys and things and sell them in your shop. So they had this bin which had, um, I think, Star Wars was the first to sell kind of figurines which mm. were kind of, you know, I don't know, about a foot high or... Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. And, and they were wrapped with a, with a cardboard backing. And Space 1999, which was one of my favourite shows at the time, they had a lo load of figures and they would always be in this fat. And I'll be honest with you, I can't quite remember if my parents refused to buy any for me or 
if I was too scared to ask because I thought mm. he'd say no. So we never did. But every time we went back, I would always find they were still there. And as late as well into the 19... I think we're talking about 1985, which is just before it closed, mm. um, that it got closed down. They still had the same unsold Space 1999 really? figures covered in dust and still with old price stickers on them. Christopher Lee and Barry Morse. I don't know why I didn't buy them by then. I had my own pocket money. Well, that, that's the thing about it. There are all these action figures that nobody really noticed at the time. That, you know, because nobody noticed them, they're worth a fortune now. And there were one that I wish I still had. Was, there's a Disney film called The Black Hole, which is, I think is from 1980. Oh, yeah, Anthony Perkins. Yes, yeah, uh, where I had, because I was obsessed with that film as a very small child. I think it was one of the first that I ever went to see in the cinema. But I had a figure of one of the robots from it. And I don't know what happened to it. I wish I still had that, because even though it's worth a fortune, I wouldn't sell it. But... Yeah, they, they were all these. They obviously thought, you know, oh, people are going to buy. Well, I think Star Wars just made everyone think about merchandising in a yeah. new way and putting out figures of everything. Well, that's why there was a children's toy, the Alien from Alien, which still baffles me to this day. Well, don't forget they did Batman: The Dark Knight and McDonald's only a few years ago. Really? That's one of my. That's one of the things to get cross about. That that film was a 12. Mm. Was it even just a 12? No, it was a 12A. So you could take four-year-olds to see that film mm. and see people getting stabbed with pencils and yeah. beaten to a pulp but no blood and yeah I remember being turned away for absolute beginners when it came out because I wasn't 15 but yeah. you were lucky <laughs> they let me I, I love absolute beginners I, I sort of love aspects of it now if you have a flick through the Great British Tuck Shop by Steve Berry and Phil Norman amazingly you're not going to find nerds in the Peacock Home Brand Cola when Steve appeared on the show though he had a very different book he wanted to talk about the hymn book for schools that was dished out called Morning Has Broken. So the book, you know, would have all your hymns in it. It was a bright burnt orange cover with no graphics on it other than a large sun as represented by a big yellow circle and underneath it, written in big, bold letters, the words Morning Has Broken. The font face is the same one that they use for Dad's Army. Yes. <laughs> uh, Cooper Black in yeah. italic. And you could at least call it the pet sounds font possibly it's a bit yeah. cooler but yeah you need that you, you need but it's nothing more 70s than that font yeah. and written in italics morning has broken now they were particularly burned into my memory not because of their ubiquity but actually because you weren't necessarily allowed one of those in your school assembly. Now, I went to a quite uh, a Church of England school. These days, I think that you you leave that in what would be called year six. We had uh, bottom infants, middle infants, top infants, junior one, two, three, four. Junior four would be what is now year six before you go to senior school. And it was only the people in junior four who were allowed to have hymn books in the assemblies in the morning and of course they were the ones sitting right at the back of the school hall and on the uh, the forms we well, used to call them forms but i think they're also called benches you know the ones that you yeah. used to use during you know your pe lessons yeah so they'd have two rows of those at the back and people could sit on those anybody sitting at the, anyone sitting any further forward would have to read all the hymns off two giant a1 <laughs> uh, flip sheets. It was all pre-printed. Yeah. It wasn't a flipboard. It wasn't a projector. It was. It was a big, bulky sort of. So you know, basically a giant book. So it was like book. a very bad version of the subterranean homesick blues yes. video. <laughs> yeah, with them, and they were properly. You know, this isn't handwritten. These were properly printed. All these hymns on there, and I think you know the investment in making sure that kids remember religious education when they are that mm. young and remember who God is and so on before you get a bit older and realise that the whole thing's just 
very, very strange and all made <laughs> up. But they're all, also all the kids at the front sitting down on their backside, cross-legged on the rubber mats, would be reading from that. And similarly, the people, you know, a little further up. And then at the back, you'd be given these these hymn books. Mm. Morning has broken. And so it would have in it all the classics, Lord of the Dance, said he, uh, you know, which is mm. the basis of a Richard Herring <laughs> routine. Give me oil in my heart, keep me praying. <laughs> but I always remember it as give me oil in my lamp eye, pray. Because <laughs> of the way he used to sing it. And, that, and that's, the, that's, that's the one with sing Hosanna to the king of... Kings, yeah, that's that always be somebody at the end of that song who would accidentally <laughs> yeah. sing of kings. The point with these books is you never see them again after mm. that time. Yeah, and if, you know, church. If you ever go to church, mm. as you know, you often have to if you're a you know in a small village like I grew up in, and you've, you're in the scouts or mm. you know or in any of the anything related to any social activity would usually be centered around the church. Yeah, but from then on in, the hymn books are these big, severe, hardback things with like tiny, tiny printing and all mm. that kind of turn to number hymn number 190 was we must have had a selection of about eight to yeah. sing and just do them on rote every mm. time and they are you know they're not the sort of things that crop up on ebay the one that we had in our church was it was called celebration hymnal and it had a vivid yellow cover with a sort of paisley design on it but the, the only thing i remember about it was that me and one of my sisters used to there was a balcony in our church and we used to ask if we could go up there mm. presumably you know trying to convince people that we were, we were being closer to god by being higher up but actually because <laughs> we we just weren't interested no one uh, can see but, you yeah but one sunday because we were so bored we tried to have a contest seeing who, who could push and balance a copy of celebration hymnal the furthest over the edge of the balcony Without it dropping. Went too far, <laughs> one fell off, but there was a postscript to it because we just thought, oh, well, ooh, that's the end of that then. But outside, afterwards, my grandmother was haranguing my mother saying, oh, it was terrible, Mrs. So-and-so was standing there and a, a hymn book landed next to her. And we, we were standing there, oh, no, that's awful, and snickering behind our hands. Which Must be a sign from God. <laughs> <laughs> Go forth and start singing more. <laughs> You're not loud enough. And now, as a bit of a bonus, here's something that you might not have heard before. It's me, with occasional interjections of Emma Bird L, who you may have heard on another edition looks unfamiliar, on the OST show on Resonance FM, talking to Johnny Trunk about a TV theme that possibly nobody's heard since around 1980. But I can't reread that. Bot- oh, das botulism. That's a bit weird. Uh Oh, God, Ivan. Diarrhea another day. That's awful, isn't it? So this, yes, special secret guest in the back, Emma, didn't didn't like the sound of that one. <laughs> Gout of Africa, we've had that before. St. Vitus Dance with a Stranger. Guitar on a Hot Tin Roof. Dr. Flu. Our tribute to Beeb. Last of the summer swine flu. Never mind the chicken pox. Where are we going now? Oh, right, now, this is... Right, we talked about this via email, didn't we? This is quite an interesting one. Uh, so, I, I don't even have any kind of vague recollection of this at all, which is why I quite like, the, like what you've told me so far. So, the first series of Morph, mm-hmm. which morphed out of, uh, not Vision On, but sort of Take, Take Heart. Heart. Yeah. Did he ever appear in Vision On? Or is he just, did he just start appearing? I think, I think was it was on Take Heart, yeah. Okay, it's only Take Heart. Then he got his own series, didn't he? Yeah, The Amazing Adventures of Morph. Yeah. And it wasn't just called Morph, it was just The Amazing Adventures yeah. of Morph. And you're saying, well, you're saying, you know, that, that if series one mm-hmm. was 
The theme is by Georgie Fame. Yes. See, to me, that's a, a brilliant combination. Georgie Fame was one of my first sort of heroes. And, you know, played Hammond organ, kind of blue old blind solely thing, the old sort of reggae Caribbean-y number, just really moddy and very groovy and brilliant dance records. And then he comes and does the theme to Morph, which to me is just, po- just poetry and on telly. It's just magic. And I didn't know this, and I should have done. Maybe because it wasn't a single, you see. No. And now you're saying that there was a catalogue for number for the single. Mm-hmm. Which means it could have been pressed as a white label or there could have been a test run or Possibly, all Possibly, yeah, yeah. yeah. And George Faves might have even got one. But then uh, you're saying it didn't get... Uh, explain what happened after that because why it didn't go any further as a, as, a, as, a, as a song. Yeah, well, The Amazing Adventures of Morph sort of was first on at the very dawn of home video when there was a, you know, a rush to get stuff onto the market. Oh, God, I was rushing yeah. all the time. <laughs> um, and the... Obviously... I assume it was Arvum and wanted to release it straight onto video. Um, and they couldn't agree terms with Georgie Fame's management for use of the song <sighs> on the sell through video. So they replaced it with the. Well, I say. Bit of library music or something? Uh, it was sort of synth theme, but I say the one everyone knows, but there was another one in between, another different synth piece, which I've never got hold of. But because, the, because they had to replace it, the planned release of the Georgie Fame single was cancelled. Yeah. After he performed it on Blue Peter. And they'd said at the end it was going to be a single on BBC Records. No, they didn't, did they? They did. And uh, oh, see, scammers. BBC, BBC I, fakery. Even I, might even phone, <laughs> I might even write in and complain next week. I know the format's changed, but it's not the point, is it? Yeah. You said to me, you said to me, you can forget the date, you said mm. to me in 1984 that this was coming out as a single. I'm still waiting. <laughs> well, one of the first things when I first started writing things online, yeah. I ever wrote was an article about does anyone remember this other more theme tune? Yeah. Gradually over the people over the years, people said, "Yeah, I did." But it took until last year to actually track down a copy of the Blue Peter performance, right. which is the what would have been the finished single. So that's and, what we're going to listen to now, dear listener. We've not we've not heard this ever on the show. Georgie Fame singing the Morph theme. Uh, before I go on, the competition is still open. You've got about forty-five minutes, fifty minutes. We want ailments with films, TV, film stars, stuff like Grange Ill. It ain't us, not mum. No country for all meningitis. You get the idea. 0207 407 1210 is the phone number. Or you could text on the burner 07507 353846. Today's prize is a copy of the book, Top of the Box, The Complete Guide to BBC Records and Tape Singles by Tim Worthington, who's our special guest today. And he's brought in Morph, sung by Georgie Fame. What's the song called? Wake Up Morph. Oh, it, of course it is. Hey, wake up, Morph. Close your eyes, you're gonna get a big surprise Here he comes, Morph is on the loose again Heed the car when you see him rolling to a bar That is when amazing things start happening If you're wise, you'll be metamorphosized Who is he? Anything he wants to be Right or wrong The trouble's only just begun Devilish Spreading havoc all around the place Marvelous And we know he's one of us Because we're wise We're all metamorphosized But nothing make it quick He moves like Mercury Back down and don't be slow Get ready, here we go He the car When he rolls into a bar 
Jesus on a merry dance. One, two, three, Papa's good enough for me. Take a chance Otherwise You'll be metamorphosized <laughs> And if you enjoyed that You can find the full show At timworthington.org We can also find All of the regular editions Of Books Unfamiliar And while you're there Why not buy one of my books And help support the show Anyway Hope you enjoyed that collection of highlights. See you again soon. Somebody, it might have been you, Tim, that posted the FA Cup and the Yellow House was before that, was before all the FA Cup footage. And I thought, my God, it exists! I didn't dream it! Top of the Box by Tim Worthington. The complete guide to every single release by BBC Records and Tapes. More details at timworthington.org. One by Tim Worthington. The story of comedy at BBC Radio One from Kenny Everett to Chris Morris and beyond. More details, timworthington.blogspot.co.uk. The Camberwick Green Procrastination Society. Articles, columns, and more, some previously unpublished. More details, timworthington.org.